If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and read the first five verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we read, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. All of us know that today is the last Sunday in August. It's the end of August, and we all know what that means, too, for all kids, right? For those who go to school, they will be going to school very soon, and the parents will go, yeah, like this. I'm glad they're finally out of the house and back to school. And it's also back to Sunday school for all those who go to Sunday school. And these beginnings, kind of, you know, with these beginnings, it kind of seems like that's the beginning of the church year in September, right? That's when everything starts up again. And it's also the time when many people are asked to serve in the church. Although I'm sure they have been asked a long time before, so that make sure that everything is in place. And so this morning I want to talk to us about service service in the church and to encourage all of us to do our part in making this place what God wants it to be. This church, and not only this church, but all the places where you and I are throughout the week, that that will be um, noticeable too, that we are servants of God. In his book, 70 Times 7, The Freedom of Forgiveness, David Oxberger tells the story of William Booth. And William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. And he had lost his eyesight, and his son Bromwell was given the, the awful responsibility to go and tell his dad that he wouldn't see no more. And his father said, do you mean that I am blind? I hear that is what we must contemplate, said Bromwell. And the father continued, he said, I shall never see your face again. The son said, not in this world. And then Mr. Booth said this. He said, I have done what I could for God and for his people with my eyes, and now I shall do for God whatever I can without my eyes. Mr. Booth had an excellent disposition toward ministry. He wasn't going to stop doing ministry just because he lost his eyesight. He was going to continue. What a remarkable resolve of someone who is determined to serve the Lord. Is that your resolve this morning as well? Is it your resolve to serve the Lord, serve your God, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? And I want to, in this message this morning, talk about our service responsibilities of all of us in the church, not only those who are in leadership positions and who are paid to do ministry in this church. We're all ministers of God. I assume that most of us, maybe almost all of us here are Christians this morning. 
And if you are a Christian, you are a servant of God. Are you with me? If you are a Christian, you are a servant of God. You and I are servants of Jesus Christ, and we are also his co-workers. You know, we all know that Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So you and I can sit back and relax, right? Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. So what am I supposed to do? Just watch Jesus, right? No, not quite. Because Jesus is using you and he is using me to do it. He can't do it without us. He could, but he's chosen not to. He's chosen to use us in the church to build the church. We're all servants of the Lord. We work with him and for him. And as we look at the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians, we notice that Paul is arguing for the unity in the church. And there were those who held to Apollos and others held to Peter and others to Paul and still others to Jesus Christ. And Paul says such divisions cannot exist in the church. We cannot have this in the church. And he makes the point that no one is more important than any other. You see, dear people, at the foot of the cross, we're all at the same level. We're all at the same level in terms of sinfulness. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're all at the same level in terms of service as well. God has chosen you and me to be a part of the church in this world. We're not all in leadership positions. We do not all lead as some people do. But we're all to do our part in the church. And to be most effective and most efficient in leadership or in, the, in our service for the Lord, we need to place ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, then we also recognize that the work that we're doing is the Lord's work. And he is using us to do it, to be a part of it. And that, dear people, is a privilege. That's not an obligation. It's not a chore. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be involved in that, folks, which means the most to God. And you know what that is that means most to God? It is his church. There is nothing in this world that means more to God than the church of Jesus Christ. It's you and I, his children. You and I, the church of Jesus Christ around the world. There is nothing more important to God than building his church. And we are privileged to be a part of it. The people, you and I, when we came to know Jesus Christ, we did not do so only to avoid hell and to be sure we go to heaven. We did so because you and I have a purpose in this world. We have a place where we need to serve. There is meaning and there is purpose in our lives as Christians. If we have not yet discovered our purpose in this world, folks, then we need to discover it. If we haven't discovered our purpose in the church, we need to discover it. We need to know why we're here. Why are you here? Why am I here? To quote Howard Hendricks, he has said this, I am convinced that the greatest days in a person's life are the day they were born, the day they were born again, and the day they came to grips with why they were born again. The three most important days in your life. Why were you born? 
Why are you in this world? Why were you born again? Have you come to grips with why you were born again? Does your life have meaning? Does it have purpose? Perhaps some of you are familiar with Dr. Frankel, a psychologist, a PhD in psychology. And he survived the Nazi concentration camp. And he uh, writes later on, he saw how so many of those prisoners there had lost all drive to live. They had nothing to live for. Everything was taken away from them. So what should they live for? Why should they even keep on living? They knew they were going to die anyhow. But he said, I kept looking and looking and looking and searching for meaning in that place of mere existence. And you know what he says in his book? He says, he who has found the why to life will be able to live with almost any how of life. Once you have discovered why you're here, then you will be able to endure things because you know you have purpose. You know why you're here. Dr. Frankel wants to make the, the point, folks, that you and I need meaning. We need purpose. If we don't have meaning, folks, then we are just living aimlessly. We don't know where we're going. But as Christians, we do have purpose. Jesus Christ made it very clear, folks, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And then he also gave us a great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Do we have purpose, folks? What do you think? We have purpose in this life, every one of us. We don't all have the gift of evangelism. We do not all have the gift of preaching and teaching or leading small groups. But every one of us can serve in some capacity. We've all been given one gift at least or more than one gift with which to serve the Lord. We can all talk to people. We can talk to our neighbors. We can talk to our co-workers. We can talk to students in school. We can tell them about Jesus Christ and how much he means to us. And how much he has done for us. We want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. And we want to see this church grow, folks. And we're going to have to do all. We're all going to have to do our part to see it happen. We cannot rely upon those who are paid in this church to do it for us. And in the text that I read to us this morning, Paul has some important lessons for all of us as servants of Jesus Christ. First of all, Paul talks about the responsibilities of God's servants. His list is obviously not exhaustive, but he names a few characteristics and responsibilities, and I want to lift some of these out. First, we, he, we must be regarded as servants. Servants. Now, I've used that word a lot already. But we must be regarded as servants. And there are a number of Greek terms that are translated as servant. And because they're all translated as servant in the English Bibles, we think that they all mean the same thing. But they don't. For example, in chapter 3, verse 5, if you want to follow there, Paul says this, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. And here the word translated from the Greek or the word that is here is translated from the Greek diakonoi. 
Ah, and then you immediately perk up and say, okay, that's where we get our word deacon from, right? That's right. Deacon means to serve in the church. But in chapter 4, Paul uses a different word, a word that he uses nowhere else. And among other things, this word describes a particular Roman slave. These slaves were those who were rowing the big Roman ships at the time. And these slaves were on the lower bank of oarsmen, right at the bottom of the ship. And they were rowing the big ships. They were following the orders of the master from above. You get the picture? The master gave orders, and they rowed. And Paul says, people regard us as under-rowers. Those at the bottom of the ship. He had been a proud Pharisee who thought he had it all together. And now, after becoming a follower of Jesus Christ and recognizing who he really was in Jesus Christ, Paul says, I am a servant. I am an under-rower. I get my command from the top, from the master. I follow him, I obey him, I serve him. Dr. F.C. Peters, whom I used to know, he's already with the Lord. He had a couple of PhDs. And he said, at one occasion, he said, I had often been asked to speak at convocations. You know, ceremonies when kids get their certificates and uh, diplomas and whatever else. And he said, I was always expected to say to these students, aim high, reach for the top, reach for the gold. But he says, I've never done it. He said, I've never, never done it. I always told the students, aim low. Aim low. He was not by that saying, I don't want you to be successful in life. But he was saying, do not forget that you are servants, first of all. You're servants of Jesus Christ, and then you can also be successful in life, but don't forget to serve the Lord. And that is what it means, folks, to be a servant. Not too many people these days would like to be known as under-rowers, those at the bottom, rowing the ships. Our world revolves around discussions of order, authority, and hierarchy. That is the way of the world, but not so among Christians. Not so in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said the Gentiles lorded over them and they are great men who exercise authority over them, but not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. It's in this context, dear people, that Jesus Christ also said to his disciples, I came not to be served, but to serve. And in the Greek it would read, I didn't come to be deaconed, I came to deacon. I came to serve, that's why I came to this world. And to be a servant means to put others ahead of ourselves, as Jesus Christ did. Programs become secondary, people become number one. Our wishes and our conflicts are set aside, and loving one another becomes the order of the day. We cannot do otherwise in the church, dear people. We can't. Putting others first is the very essence of Jesus' life. In Philippians chapter 2, 
Paul makes the point, you know, that Jesus was with, on the right hand of God. He was in a place of honor. He left it all to become like one of us and then to give his life, to serve us in that way. That is a true demonstration of love. That's a true demonstration of servanthood. And so Paul says, let people regard us as servants. Secondly, secondly, he says, uh, the second responsibility of God's servants is to be regarded as stewards of the mysteries of God. The word steward comes from the socioeconomic world of Paul. A steward was someone with big responsibility. He was entrusted with a master's business and with a master's property. He had to make decisions, big decisions concerning the things over which he was put in charge. It was his obligation to devote his time, his talents, his gifts, his energy to the master's interest. Do you get the point? Do you get it who we are? Stewards of Jesus Christ? Stewards are entrusted with the master's business and so we are to devote our time, our talents, our energy to the interests of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our master, who is calling us to serve him. And who is our master? It's God. We know that. And Paul tells us that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Folks, I don't know how many mysteries of God there are. There are many for me. I don't understand everything. There's no way in the Deuteronomy 9, 20, 29, 29 we read, there are things that are given to us to understand and there are other things that are not given to us. They belong to God. And folks, there are many things I don't understand. And one of the mysteries I think that he's talking about is the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation. God in Jesus Christ coming down to this world to become like us and to die for us. That he died 2,000 years ago. That's still effective today. A mystery, isn't it? I don't understand it. God already knew all the sins that I would commit long before I was born. And yet he had Jesus come to this world to die for me so that my sins could be forgiven. That's a mystery to me. And, and yet this is the best message that the world will ever hear. That their sins can be forgiven. And Paul says, I was entrusted with the mysteries of God. And he says to you and to me, you are entrusted with the mysteries of God. We're entrusted with the message of salvation to this world. And that, folks, is a privilege. That's a privilege. And we are entrusted with this message, and we must try to preserve it. Preserve the message. What a marvelous privilege. Today we are bombarded with an array of speculative philosophies which have no meaning and no foundation. They have no power, they have no hope, and the propensity today, the inclination today, is to say that all religions are equally valid. There is no religion that is better than the other. They are all the same value. Whatever you believe is fine. You can believe that. You'll go to heaven and I believe what I believe and I'll go to heaven too. 
By the way, did you know that Christianity is the only faith that is not a religion? Christianity is not a religion. You see, religion says that you need to do in order to earn. Christianity says God did it all for me. Jesus did it all for me. All I need to do is accept it. That's not a religion. Everything today is considered to be relative. Whatever anyone wants to believe is acceptable. Let me read you a paragraph from Dr. David Jeremiah's book, I Never Thought I'd See the Day, and I think it's on page 169. And there he says this, If America has a new religion, surely it must be the religion of tolerance. Its primary dogma is taken from noncommittal postmodernism, which says that all religions deserve equal respect. Now, Dr. Jeremiah says there's no problem there. We need to respect each other. But postmodernism goes on to say that all religions are equally valid and true since life and history have no central meta-story, no central script by which all other religions or stories are measured. Jesus, on the other hand, insisted, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. And the narrowness of Jesus' exclusive claim can be embarrassing to Christians who have grown up in the pluralistic soup of the last several decades. It puts Christianity out of step with today's culture. That's very true, folks. But do you and I have the guts to stand up for what is right? Do we have the, you know, the guts to say Jesus is the way? Or do we say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, so I, I don't know how to answer that. How, what's your position? And young people, as you go back to school and you go back to college and university, you know, our son, when he was in university, he told us at home, he said, you know, if I wasn't grounded in the faith, I would believe those professors because their arguments are so strong and so solid that if I wasn't standing firm in the word, I would believe them. And young people, you will be bombarded with this over and over again. Are you Man enough and woman enough to stand up with the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are you willing to do that? You will be ridiculed for it, but you will be the stronger for it. Stand firm. And all of those who are teaching Sunday school, all of you who are teaching, no matter which kids and what ages, make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ God's word is preserved. We do not water it down. We stand on it. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. And stewards, as stewards, we need to always be looking for ways where we can devote our time and our energy in the service of our master. We need to ask, what is it God wants me to do? Not what is it that I want to do, but what is it God wants me to do. And folks in the church too, we need to look for the gifts and talents that are there and then place them in the best place possible so that the church can function as effectively and as efficiently as possible. That's very, very important. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. And thirdly, servants must be found to be faithful we have a wonderful promise in Psalm 31, 23. There we read, O love the Lord, 
all his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful. What a wonderful promise. God places an awful lot of emphasis on being faithful. Faithful to him. Faithful in service. Faithful in his work. Years ago, I read the story of a Sunday school teacher. And um, I, I might have told you this story before, and if I do, I did, you will forgive me. I told um, the story about a Sunday school teacher who had some very rowdy kids in her class. And there was one particular really bad boy in her class. And, uh, and he, uh, you know, was always disrupting. And someday, one day he went off and lived out in a far country and lived his life in loose living like the prodigal son did. And when he had grown up, he came back home one day and he was so distraught with his life and he was down at the bottom in the pits he was and he didn't know what to do as he was walking through a cemetery and as he was walking through the cemetery, there he saw a gravestone that caught his eye and on this gravestone he saw the name of a Sunday school teacher. And as he saw that name of a Sunday school teacher, all the stories that she had told him in Sunday school came back to mind and he knelt at that gravestone and accepted Jesus Christ as a Savior. Folks, let's be faithful in teaching, no matter what the kids are like. Sometimes it may look like they're not listening, but they are. They're hearing the stories anyway. Be faithful in teaching the Word of God. Someone has said, it is not success that God rewards but always the faithfulness of doing his will. All of you in the church who serve the Lord, remember this. God does not require us to be successful. He requires us to be faithful. Faithful. Let me tell you another story about faithfulness. This one told by Mark Hetfield. Some of you will remember the name. He was a senator. And Hatfield tells of a time when he was touring Calcutta with Mother Teresa and visiting the so-called House of Dying. And as they were walking through this House of Dying, he saw so many children there that were actually dying. People had left them there to die. And then there was the, the other place where they were coming in to, to receive medication for their illnesses. And there were hundreds of them. And here was Mother Teresa walking from one to the next and serving them, ministering to them, nourishing them, and feeding them. And, and finally, uh, Hatfield was so overwhelmed. And he said to Mother Teresa, how can you bear the load without being crushed by it? And Mother Teresa replied, she says, Dear Senator, I'm not called to be successful. I'm only called to be faithful. We're all called to be faithful, folks. Every one of us. What the church needs today is people who are faithfully serving the Lord. Whether in an appointed position or the behind-the-scenes position, it doesn't matter. We all need to serve the Lord. So first Paul talks about the responsibilities, and then he also talks about the pressures of ministry. Look at verse 3 once again. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. What's Paul saying? He's saying that there are pressures in ministry. 
People judge me. People criticize me. People even leave me for dead. They stone me and leave me there thinking I'm dead. That's pressure, folks. That's enormous pressure on him. And there are many people who judge those in ministry. You shouldn't be doing it this way. You should be doing it this way instead. Can't you, can't you consider a different curriculum? Can't you do this? Can't you whatever else? We all have our wishes and we all have our different things. And we know that there are pressures. Pressures everywhere. And then maybe that is also why sometimes it's hard to find workers in the church, right? Because of the pressures. And all of you know that we face all kinds of issues today that maybe years ago we didn't face. And so we know that there are pressures, but we always need to remember that the church is not ours. It belongs to God. It belongs to Him. It belongs to God, and we must ask God for His help and do the ministry that he's entrusted to us. So what are some of the pressures? Let me name some of them. First, they are relational pressures or interpersonal pressures. Someone has said ministry would be easy if it wasn't for people. And maybe some of our pastors would say the same. Ministry would be easy if it wasn't for people. But you know, without ministry, we wouldn't have, or without people, we wouldn't have a ministry. So we need people. We need each other. We need to uh, minister to each other. And sometimes things can get quite hot. We don't agree always with one another. Isn't that true? There are times when we vehemently disagree. And, you know, one day, Hildy and I were driving along the road, and we heard someone say on the radio, if two people on the same job always agree, one of them should leave. If they always disagree, both of them should leave. Maybe that's the way in the church, too. If in one committee they always disagree, then they should disband. But if we once in a while disagree, folks, that's not bad. In fact, that is good because it keeps us on our toes, keeps us checking ourselves to see whether we're still on the right track. But we need to remember that we have to love one another. No matter what, we love one another. And even if we have disagreements in one meeting, folks, when we go out, we can shake hands and say, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. That's the way it should be in the church. And uh, we should always apply uh, 1 Corinthians 13 in our lives, right? And you all know what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Now I want you to encourage, or I want to encourage you to place your name in the place of love. Henry is patient. Henry is kind. Henry does not envy. Henry does not boast. Henry does not seek his own. Try that sometime. And that's the way we need to look at ministry as well, folks. And also when we are being criticized by people, those of you who are in leadership positions and in ministry, you will face criticism. You know, one speaker that I heard at the evangelism, School for Evangelism at the Billy Graham's, Um, school, he said this. He said, a minister's maturity can be measured or is measured by how well he can take criticism. And I'd like to edit that a little bit and say, a servant's maturity is or can be measured by how well he or she can take criticism. We must always be careful, dear people, how we respond to people. People will criticize us. We're in leadership, but we can choose how we want to respond. And if people say something that that they feel isn't right, 
in our lives, folks, then we need to make the changes if they're right. But if their criticism is unfounded, then we love them anyway and we keep serving the Lord. But we do not need to defend ourselves. You know, I mentioned Dr. Frankel before, the book that I read years ago. And in this book, he makes this point. He says the Nazis could take everything away from us, everything. They could strip us naked, take everything we had, even our lives. But he said one thing they could not take away from me, and that is the way I wanted to respond to my torturers. They could not take that away from me. And so, folks, we need to always think, how do I respond in this situation? What do I do? And the first thing you want to do is respond with love. Respond with love. Remember the church is not ours. But you know, folks, there is another pressure. And that is, or two more, actually, three more. Oh, boy, where's our time going? Tim, it's all your fault. Where is he? <laughs> now, we'll take blame um, together, right? Okay. A couple more points, quickly. There are also personal pressures. And the personal pressures are these folks where you and I tell ourselves that I, am, I do not measure up. You know, some of us are wired that way, that we're very, very hard on ourselves. And Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I don't do it. I don't criticize myself. I just give myself to the Lord and serve him. That's it. And folks, and that's the way we ought to be too. Instead of saying, I don't measure up. I can't do that. I can't do the other thing. You know, I'll make a mess of things. And then when we have done something, then we say, oh boy, was it ever lousy what I did. You see, have you ever been there? We can be so hard on ourselves. And then there are congregational pressures. You know, because we all have different likes and dislikes. Some likes this and and the other one likes something else. We can see that on the parking lot because we all drive different vehicles. Some drive Fords, pity on them, but uh, others drive GMs and who knows what, you know. But we all have our likes and dislikes, and the same as in the church. We all have our likes and dislikes, but again, folks, we have to remember that all we are are faithful servants of Jesus Christ. And then the the last, um, you know, pressure is admiration, the pressure for admiration, And with that, I simply mean that we can be proud of our service in the church. And that's a pressure that all of us face too, and we should not. You know, this is the opposite from the other one of the personal pressures, where we say we can't do anything right. This is the one where we say, boy, did I ever do a good job. And I wish somebody would come and tell me and pat me on my back and say, boy, you did a good job, you know. Those are admirational pressures. And I'm not saying, folks, that we shouldn't be successful. Yes, we should be. We should do our utmost and our best, and we all need affirmation as well. Every one of us does. But what I'm speaking and warning us against is to say to ourselves, boy, did I do a good job, and look at where the people are. They're not saying anything to me, or even before you do something. I'll do such a good job that they'll come and they'll tell me, boy, did you ever do a good job. That's what I'm warning against, folks. We are servants of God. We do this for him. Someone has said, man is the only creature that you can pat on his back and his head swells up. Praise is like perfume. It is good to smell, but I wouldn't recommend swallowing it. And I would recommend, too, that we don't swallow, you know, admiration or affirmation, but just take it and be thankful that we can be used of God. 
But there is one more point, very quickly. And that is that ministers in the church also need to keep things in perspective. Paul very clearly says when Jesus comes back, he's going to do the judging. He's going to check the motives of my heart and your heart. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you be so proud? He is the cardiologist. He knows what's in the heart. And so we need to keep that in perspective. And how fulfilling, how satisfying when one day, when you and I will stand before the Lord and he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little, little, with a little. come in and I will entrust you with more. Come in to your Father's glory. Come in. Come in. Let's all be servants of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you are the one who has given us the responsibility and the privilege of being involved in your church. And we pray that you would help us to be stewards of that which you have entrusted to us. Help us today, help us every day, help us all in the church because we need you. Without you, we are nothing. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Let's, please stand with us one last time. Mm -hmm.